Welcome to the AD Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, the Decorative Arts Editor of Architectural Digest. Today's guest is Nicole Hollis, a leading American interior designer who lives and works in San Francisco and is the author of a new Rizzoli monograph about her work, which relies less on pattern and color and more on what she calls arranging shapes in space. We talk about everything from the dyslexia that has proved to be a creative springboard for her work, to her early training in the office of architects such as Howard Backen, to her dreams of building a getaway in Hawaii, where she has been spending the pandemic with her husband and two children. We also get to explore why she and her family live in a Victorian house that's painted completely black on the outside a gesture that has stunned her neighbors, as well as perplexed her young daughter, who wonders why it isn't pink. I hope you enjoy the show. Congratulations on the new book. It's, it's really you. beautiful. I was reading it, and I think uh, our, our mutual friend Pilar Villadas wrote the introduction, which is really one of the best written portraits of a designer that I've read in a long time. I, I, I feel like I really know so much more about you than I thought I did. Yes, we, her and I spent, you know, a few visits together, long days together in New York City at various mm-hmm. locations, um, as well as a, a long day in San Francisco. And we chose to walk through Pacific Heights and visit a few of the projects that we've been working on. And so, yeah, we we really got to spend quite a bit of time together before she put pen to paper. Right. The introduction mentions that you're dyslexic. So visual memory is an incredibly important way for you to have absorbed information um, for your craft. And I'd just like to talk a bit about that. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you are asking. Um, well, it's, it's actually really, you know, been a challenge and a gift my whole life to, to work with um, being dyslexic. And, you know, from a very young age through school, I, I learned very differently. My brain works differently. I can connect very abstract thoughts and put them together into a concept probably quicker than most. And I think mm. you become very intuitive as a, as a, a child, um, um, workarounds. I had many workarounds because I was in a traditional school system. Uh, my daughter is actually dyslexic as well. So mm. we talk about, you know, the challenges and the gifts that you can, that you face. But visual memory is, is very important. Writing things down, even if I don't need, most people can remember them. I need to visually see them, even though, you know, sometimes spelling or writing is very challenging. My mm-hmm. emails are very brief. <laughs> I keep my emails short. <laughs> um, but, you know, I can, I really do, can, I really can visualize a space so easily. And, and I forget that it's more challenging for other people. So I really have learned to, how to articulate and communicate a design or an idea visually. And then how to talk someone who may not be as, you know, visually acute 
through that process and take them on that journey with me. So it's very, it's been a very important part of my life. And, you know, visiting museums, um, visiting, you know, architectural buildings, um, it was just all was just absorbed like a sponge. Mm-hmm. You know, reading was very challenging, but pictures were really great. So I really learned that way. How do you translate that to a client that carry them through a a visual journey, particularly if, like most people, they're not visually oriented in the same way? I think, um, you know, there's still quite a few words that can be used to describe a a design. So it's it's not just visual, it is oral communication. Mm. Uh, it's very important to understand that most clients don't read drawings, don't read architectural drawings. So having the ability to create 3D model renderings mm-hmm. um, has been super helpful um, for clients to understand concepts like using the, the app, you know, SketchUp or, right. or hand sketches. Anything that you can do to articulate an idea in a picture for a client is going to go much further than just waving your hands around and explaining. So I think <laughs> doing both, you know, it, you know, using the words that, to describe how beautiful or, you know, how interesting or, you know, um, how important, you know, a piece of art or an object or a piece of furniture or the craftsman that we're working with, but to be able to have a photo or to visually hold tactile, to, to hold a sample, to experience the texture or the any sort of um, visual aid that is three-dimensional or two-dimensional is is really important in our design mm. work in our studio. Uh, studio visits, like visiting an artist's studio or a craftsman is also way more sort of informative for a client or even for our, you know, our designers and myself. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, encouraging those in studio and in, in, in shop experiences is really important. Well, I, I love that because it immerses them in, not only immerses them in a new language that they're having to process, but also gives them the singular opportunity to understand, A, why things cost what they do, why things take as long as they do, and that they can make that leap from a person to the chair that person has created for them, just as an example. Right, right. And, and to understand that creating a chair can take years to develop in concept and prototyping before the final product is, is produced. Um, so I think educating and, and really showing clients how that process works behind the scenes is really important and I think they really enjoy the education and they really enjoy learning about um, the person, the craftsperson behind the product that Mm. they're going to use and having that direct relationship. Um, A lot of designers don't introduce their clients to the craftsmen and I think it's important for them to meet them. It also enriches your conversations with the client that they're not as expert as you are, but having had that opportunity to meet an artisan, to understand the cant of a chair, the, the shape of a leg, suddenly their conversation with you is, is it becomes more on a, on, a, on a similar level. 
Agreed. They they start having a visual vocabulary and a, and actually learning words that they like. I never you know had this vocabulary to describe furniture. They just that's not their world. They're either in tech or in finance or you know many of them are not in the decorative arts or the you know interiors or architecture fields. So I think learning a, a new language. Um, how to describe their own home is exciting for them. Now, you, you started out, though, wanting to be in fashion. Where was the transition point? It was pretty early. I, you know, I, I would, um, I, you know, I, I would collect, you know, I would read Vogue religiously. I would rip out, I think I had an entire wall of, I think they were mainly Cindy Crawford photos. Like they were just <laughs> like, I was very into fashion. I was very into, you know, couture. I just loved it. It was a visual feast for me um, as, a, as a young person. And, and um, I experiment, experimented in clothing. I, didn't, I did not come from a wealthy family. I had a lot of hand-me-downs, so I would rework the clothes um, and restyle it. And I was, you know, some were huge failures, but I would wear them <laughs> anyway and see how, see how it would go. So, yeah, so fashion was really uh, influential uh, uh, and still is to this day. I, I definitely look at fashion for inspiration um, all the time for my projects. And um, I, you know, at a younger age, I just started realizing that um, space, thinking spatially, I was very good at it. Mm. Um, and that I, I was always decorating or redecorating my own room or my friend's rooms or, you know, really interested in architecture and design. Um, I grew up in West Palm, in Jupiter, which is outside of West Palm Beach. Um, but my my friends and family had houses in Palm Beach, and visiting those historical houses really moved me. We spent our summers in New York. My grandmother lived in New Jersey, mm-hmm. so seeing you know the architecture and the museums in New York also inspired me. So I think visiting the Metropolitan Museum and seeing the historical rooms, interiors, really set that path towards uh, interior architecture mm-hmm. for me. And you, I remember when we were talking, uh, when, I, when we, we were talking about your house in San Francisco that's featured in the next issue of Architectural Digest, you had mentioned to me how important it was for your own stylistic vocabulary to have worked for architects early on. And you talked about yes that it wasn't so much the idea of decorating as it was moving shapes in space. That's right. I always say I'm, I'm not a great decorator. I, I never worked for a, a, a traditional decorator. I always worked for architects. So it was my training and my eye was always about space and light and uh, form and function as well. And then sort of almost reducing the amount of uh, decoration or, you know, or ornamentation. So it was very much about reduction and about consideration. Um, and, you know, is that decoration really needed? And then if it's added, it's very intentional. Um, so, you know, as a work of art or a piece of furniture. Um, so it was more about, you know, shaping spaces than decorating them. I mean, I know in your house, what struck me so much was that although it feels, in terms of objects, it, it's, it feels reductivist. But at the same time, the materiality is so strong that the textures, the, the shapes, the um, finishes 
you know, more than make up for there not being a vase on that table or something thrown over the edge of a sofa. And I thought that was a really eye-opening thing for me to explore through your house. It is funny because I, it, it's almost like that, you know, the saying where you, before you walk out the door, take off like two accessories or, you know, I just would, could never accessorize even in fashion. I could never like wear dangly earrings or big belts or bracelets. Um, so I never fit in at the D and D building as a student. I would, they would, I just, I was in like combat boots and a white t-shirt and they were like the sample boxes in the corner. And I was like, no, I'm a designer. I swear. I just can't accessorize. But I just, yeah, I don't, when I design, I, I'm always about reduction. So it's about form and it's about materials. I'm really interested in materials and natural stone and wood and plaster and how these, you know, sort of interact and, um, activate each other, then applying, you know, fabrics and textiles, but really thinking about the textiles and where they come from. Is it, you know, an antique piece of indigo from Japan or a woven textile from Africa? So I really think about these pieces as art as well, you know, as, you know, fashion and art, mm -hmm. as opposed to just like, a you know, a, a rando piece of fabric that is ordered you know, no, there's no history or or no sort of weight to it. So I'm not really into a lot of pattern and a lot of color. And I just really like things to be quiet and sort of contemplative. What's interesting, though, about you saying the space being contemplative is that idea, too, of a space that's clean and simple and restful. Also, conversely, makes you focus on the inhabitants of that space even more. You know, a, a lot of decoration you can feel subsumed in. You can disappear into it. Whereas a house like yours, I think you're very aware of your body in that space. That's true. I think the house is a quiet backdrop for, for life. And, you know, there is texture and color through, we have, you know, many books. Mm -hmm and you know art pieces and some objet that we've brought back in our travels but not many i mean it just really it and for me i you know i do like decorative objects and mm. i sort of do collect them and but my husband who is who would live in a complete white box like he just is so minimalist so there's always that struggle where I'm bringing in junk and he's like, what is that? Why do we need that bowl? And I'm like, because it's beautiful. Look at this bowl. It's so beautiful. And he's like, but it doesn't have any function. And I was like, uh, does it, it need, it function is because it's beautiful. Like, so there is this, you know, to have our own personal house in the magazine is, is very, um, is very challenging because, you know, as a designer, it wasn't just like all Nicole. It was this like battle between Lewis and I <laughs> of how much, how much we have in the house and how little and, you know, where's that perfect balance. So it really was, you know, us together. I also really, what galvanized me too about the, about getting this assignment is I did not realize until I started working on it that it had been the home of one of America's pioneering woman architects, Julia Morgan. Yes, it, it is Julia Morgan's house and um, she didn't design it, but she did live there. So it was very much like Julia was always with us as we were modeling the house. And so we preserved her um, 
you know, her moldings, her, you know, the Victorian um, aesthetic of the house, and then put our own modern twist on the on the mm. furnishings and the cabinetry. So I think I think we did right by Julia. And for for people listening in to the podcast, uh, Julia Morgan was what was she? She was the first woman licensed architect in California. She that's correct was. William Randolph Hearst's personal court architect, and and she did so many buildings for him. So many buildings in San Francisco downtown and in Berkeley and there's, you know, in Sausalito and her most notable is Hearst Castle. Yeah, she definitely was employed by him, but there, it's very hard to find, Pilar and I discussed this, it's very hard to find any information about Julia or any photos of Julia. So it, it, you know, she, she definitely was, um, you know, regarded as a great architect, but I'm not sure if during her day or if it was quite later in life or after her life that she was very much revered. I wonder what she would think of your having painted the facade of her house jet black. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that she's okay with that. I, yeah, I think it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I thought it looked amazing, and I, mean, I think it does look amazing. And what I, I thought is especially brilliant about painting it black, most people would think that painting a building black would blot out all of the architectural features, but instead it actually weirdly enhances every profile on that facade. I did notice a few other black houses, Victorians, in San Francisco, and or dark gray, or just, you know, all one color. And, and a lot of the Victorians in San Francisco or Edwardians are painted with multiple colors for the trim, and they bring out the gilding, and they, you know, they really go for it. And, and it just never stood out as much as when it was just painted one solid matte black or gray. So... I knew the day we bought that house that we were going to paint that house black. <laughs> Although, to my my daughter's dismay, she's why is our house black? Why can't it be pink? <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I also I also liked very much the fact that the black reminded me of such a, a a really bold gesture, but yet it reminded me of so many other things. It reminded me of, in particular, that Japanese wood finish where they burn the wood. Um, oh, the Shizugiban. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, we, we actually have Shizugiban in our studio, in our office, a few walls made of the, the traditional Japanese technique of the burning of the wood, and we've used it in a few projects. So it really just has a beautiful sheen and texture, and, and it's actually durable for exterior. Mm. So it, it really does do well. I, it would be great to have a house of my own clad in that. But for now, I'll take Benjamin Moore tar black. <laughs> Or black tar. Black. Yeah, I think it sure might, be black tar. might be black, black tar. Might be black tar. <laughs> the th- your floors in the house are such a departure, so radical. Again, as the exterior is radical, your floors in the house are so un-Victorian. They're so not modern too. But yet, I I don't know. I just don't, I always um, love these reclaimed wood boards. They were really you know, beautiful in texture and in color. And I felt like I, I didn't, I never even really thought about it. I just knew I wanted these floors and we did it. 
Um, I worked with Arc Timber in San Francisco, and they they sourced it. I think from a ten a barn in Tennessee, and it's all solid oak. Um, and then we put in the floors, and then brought in this like modern buffy cabinetry for the kitchen. And I thought this juxtaposition of this like rough floor with this you know, just felt really homey and down to earth and and family friendly. It just I felt like if the floor was very clean and minimal and in modern, it would just be too cold. So I went, I went for it. And it's a, it's surprising. Everyone that visits are very surprised by the floors. Well, and it's also the kind of floor that holds up well under children and dogs. That's right. <laughs> Everything. You won't even believe what that floor has been through. <laughs> what was it like working, to go back to your CV for a minute, what was it like working for Howard Backen, who I just think is brilliant? And I know he's been a longtime oh. favorite at, at AD for years. Oh, yeah. Uh, working for Howard is the best. He is a great mentor. You know, he just, we'd be sitting in a meeting and it may not be going gr- his way, you know, it may not be going great. And, and he's just like looking, he's like drawing on the table and Google. I'm sweat. I'm like, this is not going well. What are we going to do? I'm panicking. I'm like, oh my gosh. And he's just like drawing and sketching. And I'm like, Howard, what, what's going on? What do we do? He's like, what, what, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know. This isn't going well. He's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Stay focused. Stay focused on the building. Don't worry about all this. Just stay focused on the building. And I was like, okay. You know, he just was always like, we're going to, all this politics and whatever, budgeting and, you know, mm. he just always stayed focused on the design. He just told me to stay focused, get it right and keep fo- keep fighting for the right thing, for the right building. You know, make sure that, you know, what it is that we're trying to accomplish, that we really do stand behind it and we, and we push for it. And, you know, when you're younger, you're so accommodating to your client. You want them to like you. You want to please them. You want to meet their budget. And, you know, he had, you know, years of experience. And so he had the ability to just say, that's great, but that's not, that's not going to work. Like, that's not the vision here. Mm-hmm. So he could course correct and get people back on board. Even if it was 10% over budget, they'd all walk out arm in arm after the meeting, like happy, you know. So I was just, I learned some great lessons about how to stay focused on, on the vision and really bring the client up to the vision as opposed to trying to meet them where they are to right. try and bring them where you are. So we call him the client whisperer. You know, <laughs> he, could just, he could just really get get whatever he wanted. And, he, and he, they would say, we want, you know, I want this house and it's going to have a turret and it's going to have this. And you can see Howard's face. He's like, Paul, he's like, I'm not doing that. But he would say, sure, we'll, we'll take a look. We'll study. You know, so he'd always agree. And I knew what that meant after a while that that meant, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. But he would always tell the client, you know, absolutely. Um, so, I, you know, I definitely learned those life lessons about, you know, staying focused on the vision and bringing the design back to the conversation when it got too far into politics or money or, you know, right. just like, let's get back to what it is we're all here to do. And and he's just, a, you know, a brilliant designer and always thinking about the little details and you know, you're lying in bed. What are you looking at? Like, not a lot of architects think about what you're doing from the inside out. Well, that's that's always Howard. He's like, you're lying in bed and you're going to be looking d- directly at a tree. You know, how, what are the views from the inside out? Instead of just staring at the exterior of the building all the time. 
So I, I definitely was spoiled. I had some great houses that I got to work on. I, I love his house that we published a few years ago in AD. It's in the... Is it, the, the Napa Valley? But where is it? I'm, the Napa Valley. That's, yeah. That is one of the Napa most Valley. beautiful houses I've ever laid eyes on. Yeah, it's, it's, fant- it's fantastic. So tell me about the book, Curated Interiors. How did you choose, how did you go about selecting the 13 projects for the book? Because obviously some had to be left out. You can't always include everything you want. So how did you winnow down to these specific projects as saying everything you wanted to say about yourself and your vision? Very challenging uh, to choose the projects. But some of them were obvious choices and, you know, beautiful projects, great clients. Um, definitely wanted to share the, the collaborations of the, of the artists and the architects that worked on the projects. And then others that I would love to have shared, but you know, we have a lot of very private clients mm. who do not want their houses published. Um, so that limits, you know, some of the choices that we had, which also made it a little easier to to whittle it down. But I feel like we had a really great cross-section. We wanted some city projects. We wanted some um, Hawaii projects. And, you know, we've got like a country or, you know, a Stinson Beach project. Um, so it really shows scale, some larger and some smaller. So it took a lot of work to figure out what to what to put in there. And you are putting yourself out there, so you really want to think about what is interesting to the reader and who's going to buy the book and what are they going to take away from it. Mm. I love that you had some Hawaii projects because of all the 50 states, I think it and Kansas don't get enough design play. Um, in the media, you, you, you think you know everything about Hawaiian houses, but you don't actually see many of them. And I know you're working on a house there for yourself. Yes, I am. <laughs> Hopefully we'll eventually get to move in. <laughs> We're not in our house right now. Um, yeah, I'm working on a resort here as well, um, which is you know more based on the traditional Hawaiian culture, but has a new twist, a very forward-thinking resort. You know, it really is... You know, the Hawaiian Islands are great. I spend a lot of time on the Big Island. And um, yeah, we've been working here for about 10 years with clients on their you know, holiday or, or full-time homes. So it really is taking the traditional Hawaiian house and sort of bringing it up to date in a more modern way, um, but really engaging with, with the exterior. And so most of our work is about location and responding to that location and, and really engaging with with the environment mm. around. And the landscape here is stunning. I'm in Hawaii right now. It, 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 I know, and I'm <laughs> jealous that you're in Hawaii right now. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for talking with me about your book and your work and your house, which I'm really longing to visit soon once we can travel again. But I've really enjoyed it, and congratulations on, on once again on a great book. Thank you, Mitch. And, and thank you for writing a great story about, about our house. I really, really enjoyed that. I had, a, I had a blast. Thank you. The ADSC is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.